Well, if we could turn again to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we'll consider really all the first 15 verses, but perhaps focusing on verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people. Well, we are here in a significant time of change and uncertainty in the lives of God's people. Israel had known for 40 years, by and large, security and blessing under the leadership of King David. But in 1 Kings 2, the life of David comes to an end. David, the great king, the great leader of God's people, dies. But in his last days, David instructs Solomon, telling him to frame his kingship in accordance with the word of God, to trust in the promises of God's word, that David's seed would reign always as king. And chapter 2 ends with Solomon established in his position as king in Israel. 1 Kings 2, 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. The chapter of David's leadership has closed and the chapter of Solomon's leadership has begun. And the question Solomon faces at the start of his reign is what kind of king will he be? How will the kingdom of God be shaped under him? Will he be a man who rules in accordance with God's word and trusts in its promises as King David had instructed him? Or will he rule in the spirit of the kings of the nations round about with their lust for power, money, and sex? And as Solomon was faced with these questions, we also have a new king who is faced with exactly the same questions. And surely our prayer is for Charles that he would begin his reign by and large as Solomon begins his here. And the verses that we have read in 1 Kings 3 goes a long way to answering the kind of questions as to what king would Solomon be. They show us something of a foretaste of the great heights to which he would lead God's people. But they also show us the seeds of sin, which would ultimately lead to the judgment and division of God's people into the two nations of Israel and Judah. So these are hope-filled but also sobering verses. And in considering 1 Kings 3, we'll see three things about the beginning of Solomon's reign We'll see a holy heart, we'll see a faulty foundation, and we'll see a pleasing prayer 
a holy heart, a faulty foundation, and a pleasing prayer. First, then, we see that Solomon begins his kingship with a holy heart. That's what we have in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. How will Solomon begin now that the kingdom is securely his? He will begin with a heart that overflows with love for God. You might remember that back at Solomon's birth in 2 Samuel 12, this was recorded. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, that is, beloved of the Lord. The Lord had set his love on Solomon from his youth. And in return, Solomon loves the Lord. Solomon could add his voice to 1 John 4. We love him because he first loved us. So Solomon begins his reign with a heart full of affection, full of holy emotion towards the living God. But love isn't an ethereal thing. Love is tangible. If we say we love someone and do nothing for them, then we don't love them. And so it is here that Solomon shows the reality of a heart that loves God. We see that first when we're told in verse 3 that Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David, his father. His life shows that he loves God. He has patterned his conduct on the laws of God, the commandments, the ordinances that are in Holy Scripture. His life is captive to God's word and that shows the reality of his love. And we see further evidence of Solomon's heart of love in his costly worship. We have that in verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Solomon shows that he loves the Lord. By the costliness of his worship. Imagine the, the expense, the sheer effort involved in sacrificing a thousand animals at Gibeon, where the tent of meeting was at this point. And yet that was in no way too much for Solomon. He loved his God, and therefore to worship his name, nothing was too much. And that, I think, puts a challenge to us. You know, if we love the Lord, then the whole bent of our heart should be to worship his holy name, whatever the cost. So that is how Solomon begins, with a holy heart of love to God. But it's not so much how we begin that matters. But as we saw this morning, how we end. And there are hints in this chapter 
that though Solomon loves the Lord sincerely, all is not well. And so, secondly, we see a faulty foundation. Look at what we have, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then look at what we have at the end of verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And we are told two things that give us pause for thought. One is Solomon entering that marriage alliance with Egypt. The other is his disregard for how God has asked to be worshipped. And as we unpack these two things, we'll we'll see there the, the seeds of Solomon's downfall in his love of money, power, and lust. They're only seeds at this stage. But later in his life, they come into full and bitter flower. And the first element in Solomon's faulty foundation is his marriage to the Egyptian princess, verse 1. Who does Solomon choose as a, a life partner, a fellow believer in the living God, one whose heart, like Solomon's, loves the Lord? No, he, he chooses Pharaoh's daughter. And here he is clearly sinning and marrying someone who is a stranger to the covenant God. So why did Solomon do this? Well, we're told that he is making a marriage alliance. He isn't marrying for love. He's marrying an Egyptian princess for status and for protection. This is sealing an alliance, a political and military union between Israel and Egypt. You know, Solomon might have been flattered. Here's the great nation of Egypt wanting an alliance with him, the king of a small nation. Israel has arrived on the international map. I'm a player on the geopolitical scene. And if I just do this, I cement my power. I cement my place. And I get a beautiful woman into the bargain. What is not to like about this? But what a tragedy. Solomon is beginning his kingship. At least in some ways looking to Egypt for protection and prosperity. When God, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, has already made his kingship secure. How tragic it is to see Solomon leading God's people, the very people that God rescued from Egypt, back into alliance with them. The second element of the faulty foundation is the false worship of the true God. These making of offerings and sacrifices at the high places. And God says explicitly, this is lacking in Solomon's obedience. 
Now, the word of God had explicitly said, when you come into the promised land, do not worship at the high places, these sites of idolatry. We have that, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, where God says, worship me only at the central meeting point in Jerusalem, where the ark is. And that's where Solomon worships, verse 15 of this chapter. And that's the only place he should have worshipped. Now, how, how do we account then for this contradiction? Here's Solomon, a man who loves God. He's a man who, by and large, lives in accordance with God's word. And yet here, at the beginning of his kingship, he is engaging in these sins. He marries an unbeliever for political security. And he worships God in a way that God has told him not to. How do we understand this? Well, the only way I can understand it is by remembering that Solomon is an awful lot like me. And probably an awful lot like you as well. He loves his God sincerely. But he doesn't love his God perfectly. We are all a bundle of contradictions. We all have to say with David, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret sin. It is so strange in one sense that Solomon loves God and yet fails him so badly at the start of his kingship. And yet we know to our shame that is also our experience. The good that we would, we do not. And the evil that we would not, that we find ourselves doing. And this side of glory, that will always be our experience. The key, though, is that our failings are an aberration and not the pattern of our lives. And that is where Solomon failed. The sins that he fell into at the foundation of his kingdom grew and grew and grew until they became cracks that brought the whole thing down. How can we prevent that happening to us? Well, one illustration given to me as a, a young student has always stuck with me. An elder in the church just asked me a question. When you see a man standing at the bottom of the stairs, how did he get there? And the answer was that yes, very occasionally, the man might have fallen from top to bottom in one go. But 999 times out of a 1,000, the man has got to the bottom of the stairs because step by step by step down he went. And he said the Christian life is exactly like that. It is very rare that the fall is sudden. Rather, it's a series of small downward steps that lead to the fall. And here in this chapter, Solomon is beginning to take the first steps that lead to his ruin. Here he marries one wife from outside of Israel. He takes one step down the staircase. And where does that end? He ends up going from Solomon loved the Lord to 1 Kings 11, 
King Solomon loved many foreign women and his wives turned away his heart. Here Solomon worships the true God in a wrong way. He worships in a high place, one step down the staircase. And where does this end up? 1 Kings 11. Then Solomon built a high place for Hemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. One step, one step, and the man who loves the Lord ends where Solomon ends. And let us not think we are any better than Solomon. I am absolutely convinced, I am absolutely convinced Solomon is a saved man. But how far he fell. Because although he began with love to God, he failed to build his life on firm foundations. And sin worked on the small cracks until they were huge chasms in his life. Solomon as I say, was saved. But he was saved only through fire, having his work burned up. So don't allow these cracks into your lives. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And clearly, as a nation, we have great cracks in our national life how we need to pray that our new prime minister and our new king wouldn't widen them but in surprising ways that they would return to the good old paths so a holy heart but a faulty foundation then a pleasing prayer verses 5 through 15 though solomon is taking the first steps in his downward spiral in breaks the grace of God. Solomon is here worshipping at Gibeon, doing something wrong. But while God never excuses the sins of his people, how often he graciously overlooks them. And so here, in grace, God comes to Solomon in a dream. And God doesn't rebuke him. Instead, he gives Solomon a great incentive to prayer. He gives him this promise, verse 5, ask what I shall give you. And that's it. No conditions, no boundaries. Ask me what is on your heart and I will give it to you. And that just reminds us what a generous God we serve. A God who comes to a, a wayward servant and simply says, tell me the greatest desire of your heart and I will give it to you. And we serve a God who is no less generous today. Here God is saying to one man, ask and I'll give it to you. But the Lord Jesus says to every single one of us, if you ask anything in my name, John 14, 14, I will do it. And so if Solomon is given an incentive to prayer here, it's an incentive every single one of us has. When we come to our God in prayer, 
We come to a father who is saying to us, ask and I shall give it to you. Well, Solomon responds to the invitation of his generous God. He begins verses 6 and 7 by acknowledging the faithfulness of God. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. You know, Solomon's been given free warrant to ask God for anything, but he doesn't begin by asking. He begins with who God is and what God has done. He begins his prayer of response reflecting on God's faithfulness to his father David and ultimately God's faithfulness to his own covenant promises. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God had said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. That was God's covenant promise to David and here Solomon as he prays to the gracious generous God acknowledges that the Lord is the covenant making and covenant keeping God. He rejoices that he is drawing near to the faithful God. And it's so important that we hold on to God's faithfulness when we pray. If we're not persuaded that God is faithful to his promises, that he is absolutely trustworthy, that he always delivers on what he says, then our prayers will not be with confidence. But Solomon here is able to respond to God's gracious invitation to ask anything with great confidence and boldness because he knows that God is faithful. So Solomon prays to the faithful God, but he also prays from a sense of his own weakness. Verse 7, he says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Solomon is king. He is the ruler of God's people. He has been courted by the powers of the day like Egypt. He's in a position that could puff him up with pride and self-sufficiency. And yet what does he say of himself in prayer to God? I am but a little child. Now Solomon's probably about 20 years old. He's not a little child. And David said to Solomon before David died, 1 Kings 2, 9, Solomon, you are a wise man. But that's not how Solomon sees himself as he is in prayer before God. He sees his insufficiency, his weakness. He feels like a little child. And it's when we have that spirit that we will truly value prayer. When we feel our own weakness, we will desire to lay hold on the strength of the faithful God in prayer. And Solomon is a great example to us in that. But then we see that Solomon prays 
not principally for himself, but for the good of God's people. He prays trusting God's faithfulness. He prays out of his own weakness and insufficiency. And he prays for the good of God's people. Verse 9, he asks for an understanding mind. He asks for the wisdom that he needs as king of God's people. As we've said, Solomon feels his lack of wisdom, his lack of experience, and so he prays for what he lacks. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. But why is Solomon asking for this wisdom? Because, verses 8 to 9, your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people. Therefore, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. The need for wisdom, the need for an understanding mind is not for his own sake, but that he might through that bless God's people. His burden is not for himself, but for the good of God's old covenant church. He doesn't pray, make my life better. He prays, equip me to serve God's people better. Here then is a truly model prayer for us. We aren't kings, but it would be good if we moved in response to the generous promises of the faithful God, moved by a sense of our own weakness, ask God for understanding hearts, for wisdom, that together we might serve one another better. But the passage doesn't end with a focus on Solomon. The passage moves again to God's gracious generosity. Verse 10, we read, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And that itself is a staggering thought, that we can please the living God, that sinful creatures like you and I and like Solomon can pray in a way that pleases God. And would to God that we lived and prayed in a way that pleased him more deeply. But even more than that, just behold the generosity of our God. Look at how God responds to Solomon in verses 11 to 14. Solomon, you asked for wisdom. I will make you the wisest man who ever lived. And because you weren't selfish, because you didn't ask anything for yourself, because you didn't seek your own good, I will give you the riches, the honor, and the long life you didn't ask for. Now behold that our God is the God who gives above and beyond what we can ask or even think. Solomon here seeks first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And what does he find? He finds that all other things will be added to him.
So that is Solomon's holy heart of love. The tragedy of the faulty foundation and the glory of the pleasing prayer. And above all that, there is the generosity and the grace of the God we serve. But the passage still has one thing to teach us. It is to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Solomon here is a picture of the Lord Jesus, who after all is the greater than Solomon. Solomon here asks for wisdom to judge, verses 9 and 11, to discern, verses 9, 11 and 12, to understand or have wisdom, verse 11. But the Lord Jesus Christ has all these things by right. Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Lord Jesus. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge. Solomon was given wisdom to rule and to lead God's people for a while. But ultimately his judgment was by sight. And even more ultimately, his judgment failed when he forsook wisdom and fell into sin. But there is one who never fails, who never forsakes wisdom. There is a greater king than Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the privilege as his subjects of being guided and ruled with infallible wisdom. And because of that, we, God's people, are safe and secure, whatever goes on around us, because our leader, our king, is the greater than Solomon. So how then should we respond to the great gift we have in Christ, who as our king is the wisdom and power of God for us, 1 Corinthians 1.24 Well, when Solomon received wisdom from God, he responded in worship. Then he came, verse 15, to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. And here this evening, you and I have received greater wisdom in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is for us the power and wisdom of God. And may we all be moved in response to worship our great God. And may our King, Charles III, desire to know Christ and his wisdom. Amen.